The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Oh, my. I can't believe it. See you later. Come on. I can't believe it either, Bob. <laughs> there are no more get-me-over fastballs to start baseball games than Kyle Schroeder's in the leadoff spot. Another elevated fastball. Belt high. Goodbye. This is getting a bit ridiculous with Kyle Schwarber. I mean, he is having a run that is up there with the all-time home run stretches in baseball history. Uh, the Nats got another win as well. Four to three winners last night over Tampa Bay at Nats Park. They played this afternoon. They are three games back of the Mets in the National League East for the first time since early in the season they are a game over 500. In fact, I think the last time they were a game over 500 was after the opener when they were 1-0. and oh. A couple of things about Kyle Schwarber's stretch here. First of all, last night was interesting because Rich Hill, who the Nats certainly know from uh, Dodgers days, Rich Hill was on the mound for Tampa. Rich Hill is a left-hander. He was facing Kyle Schwarber batting as a lefty last night to lead off uh, the bottom of the first um, in their game against Tampa. Rich Hill coming in to last night's game um, was dominant against left-handers. Uh, left-handers were hitting 143 against him in 56 at-bats uh, so far this year, and not one lefty he had faced had hit a home run off of him. Last year, in what was an abbreviated season, of course, he faced lefties 17 times, and nobody hit a home run off him. In 2019, he was homered off of by lefties just once. He's been dominant against left-handers. You will... You've got to think that upcoming in games ahead, people are not going to pitch to Kyle Schwarber. They're going to pitch around him. But last night, Tampa thought, Rich Hill, the matchup, lefty versus lefty, we're going to be okay. Uh, They weren't. 
um, his first pitch was a fastball that only reached a velocity a velocity of 83.5 miles per hour, and Schwarber knocked it over the right field wall into the third deck, 434 feet. First pitch, his 16th home run in the month of June, all of which have come from the leadoff spot. Let me uh, remind you, if you didn't know this, he didn't start leading off until June 12th. Imagine if that had started at the beginning of the month. Where would we be? 16 home runs in 18 games. Um, That matches Sammy Sosa in 1998 and Barry Bonds in 2001 as the greatest 18-game stretches in Major League Baseball history hitting home runs. Of course, Sosa and Bonds were steroid guys. Um, Other uh, notes from this Schwarber hot streak include 12 home runs over his past 10 games. That matches Albert Bell, who did that in 1995, for the most over a 10-game stretch. Five of his games have been multi-homer games, including three in one game. That ties the record for the most uh, multi-home run games in a calendar month. Um, Albert Bell in 95, and Harmon Killebrew, who was a Washington senator um, at one point, also a Minnesota twin, uh, he did it in May of 1959. He's got seven first-inning home runs this month. That ties Alfonso Soriano, September 2007, and Carl Yastrzemski, Yaz, in June of 1969, uh, one of three players to have seven first-inning home runs in a month. His 16 home runs in June are the second most ever for the month of June, trailing only Sammy Sosa's 20 back in 1998. But listen, uh, m- most ever for the month of June. Listen to the other players Um, in terms of a month record, like one month, any month during the regular season. Sammy Sosa hit his 20 in June of 98. Schwarber's got the second most ever in the month of June at 16 right now. Um, He's got one more day. They've got an afternoon game this afternoon. But for one month, for a calendar month, here are the record number of home runs. Listen to this list. Sammy Sosa's 20 in 1998, Giancarlo Stanton's 18 in August of 2017, Sosa in 2001 hit 17, Bonds hit 17 in the month of May in 2001, Willie Mays hit 17 in August of 1965, Mark McGuire twice, July 99, May of 98 hit 16 in a month, and Ralph Kiner in September of 1949 hit 16. Sosa, Stanton, Bonds, Mays, McGuire, Kiner, and Kyle Schwarber. 16 in the month of June 2021. That's the company he is keeping right now. Um, Schwarber is crushing pitches. I can't imagine they're going to pitch to him for much longer. In that leadoff spot, you typically suffer from not having men on base, but you're protected by what's coming up. So to walk him um, too much means that you're putting a man on base for Trey Turner and then for Juan Soto. Juan Soto last night in the bottom of the first, after Trey Turner doubled following Schwarber's home run, Soto homered 
And Soto homered last night for the first time since June the 9th. So Soto had not had a home run in a game since June the 9th against, ironically, Tampa Bay in a game in which they gave up a lead, then took the lead back and won 9-7 to in 11 innings. It was on that June 10th morning following that game that Barry's Verluga came on the radio show and said, you know, we all try to do this every once in a while in the moment, say this was the key moment of the season. This is the moment that's going to turn everything around. But he said it on that morning of June 10th, not knowing anything about Kyle Schwarber and the influence he would have. But he said that the Nats holding on to win that game in 11 innings at Tampa, 9-7 to after blowing a two-run lead in the 10th, Um, in the bottom of the 10th, he really felt like that could be a turnaround moment for the team. They did lose two out of the next three, um, but since have won 13 of 16 and are very much in the hunt. By the way, last night, another really good outing from Joe Ross. He's had some outstanding outings. Um, he's had a couple of rough outings too, but six and a third, six hits, two earned runs, struck out seven. Uh, the Nats held on. Hand gave up a leadoff home run in the ninth and then got three straight batters and I think a total of five pitches. Uh, today it's Lester um, for the Nats. Um, I think it's Waka for Tampa. I, I believe um, it's Waka. It could be Rasmussen, um, but a big one, an afternoon game before the Nats take off for L.A., and a matchup uh, this weekend, four games against the Dodgers. Uh, but wow, Kyle Schwarber is doing something that um, for if for an individual, uh, it's one of the best runs by any individual athlete, sport uh, team sport athlete, really that we've ever seen in this town. All right, I have a special guest on the show today, and I've already recorded this interview. And we are going to get to it in a few minutes. Um, But the interview will be with Dan Grunfeld, Ernie Grunfeld's son. He's written a book. Um, I'm saying this now because I had no, no idea truly what to expect from this interview. I didn't know a lot about the book going in. And I definitely did not know enough about Ernie Grunfeld's life and how he grew up. Um, but, uh, Dan Grunfeld was outstanding. So we are going to take a quick break. I'm going to come back to a couple of other sports items, and then we will get to that interview right after this word from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I did want to mention briefly um, the NBA game last night. Uh, I can't believe how soft and disinterested Milwaukee came out in that game against Atlanta without Trey Young. I thought it was a poor job by their coach Budenholzer. There have been head-scratching moments all of the postseason watching Milwaukee, but they do have really good players, and they've got one exceptional player in Giannis Attentacumpo, and he got hurt in the third quarter. They were starting to make a run back into the game. Personally, I thought the way they played the first half, which was uh, uninspired um, on every level, I don't know that they would have won the game with Giannis, um, but with no Trey Young, they should have won the game last night, and they should have been up by 20 at halftime. They should have tried to bury Atlanta right now to take a 3-1 lead, a team that has, hasn't been to the NBA Finals and is sniffing it and gets to play a team in an Eastern Conference Finals, game four, up two games to one, and that team doesn't have its best player. And they came out, and they were dreadful in the first half, down 13. Giannis got hurt. They were starting to play a little bit better. I don't think they would have won had he stayed in. I hope he's healthy. I hope Trey Young's healthy. I hope Clint C- uh, Capella's healthy. Um, this postseason, they've lost too many really good players that have impacted games. Um, but uh, Atlanta, give them credit, man. Um, to win without Trey Young seemed uh, impossible. Uh, I also wanted to mention that ESPN just put out a list, 1 through 32, of the best rosters in the NFL heading into this season, right now, based on what the rosters look like. Um, and uh, this is um, a, uh, a, a, an analysis using the Pro Football Focus database and grades Um, So, as I always say with PFF, take it for whatever you think it's worth. Um, But I was curious, as I always am, on these lists and these rankings to see where Washington is. So, Tampa's got the number one rated roster heading into 2021. Kansas City's two. Cleveland is three. Cleveland getting a ton of preseason love. Like, they've got a legitimate chance to make a run to the AFC title game. You know, they played the Chiefs pretty tough in that playoff game, that's for sure, um, at Arrowhead after destroying the Steelers. I don't think the Browns have a better roster than the fourth-best team in the league that they've got here, which is Buffalo. I think Buffalo's roster and coaching staff, the whole thing, like it will not surprise me at all if it's a Buffalo-Kansas City rematch in the AFC title game. Baltimore's fifth. Green Bay is sixth. Obviously, this is... Um, presuming Aaron Rodgers is the starting quarterback. The Rams have the seventh-best roster. The Cowboys have the eighth-best roster. You know what? I can see the Cowboys having a top third of the league kind of roster. Definitely. This is more than top third. Okay, this is top quarter. Um, But uh, the Cowboys fully healthy. They got an awful lot offensively. They have a solid to really good offensive line, and they've got playmakers, they've got a back, and they've got a quarterback. Defensively, just the fact that they'll have a new coach in Dan Quinn 
um, goes with a team that I thought was more talented than their results, uh, you know, um, than than the, the produced results last year. Dallas, the eighth best roster. Minnesota's is ninth. Minnesota made a lot of changes and a lot of additions to their defense in particular and their offensive line, the two weaknesses on their team. Um, they've got the ninth best roster according to uh, this analysis on ESPN.com. Denver is, is 10. Interesting. Um, I wouldn't have thought, uh, you know, that Denver's, uh, you know, in the top 10. Offensively, they've got weapons. Melvin Gordon in the backfield. They got rid of Philip Lindsay, but, you know, Cortland Sutton coming back, Jerry Judy, um, Noah Fant, and they've got, you know, um, Hamilton and. Uh, they've got a lot of receivers, man. They've got a lot of receivers on that team. They've got the other Penn State kid whose name is escaping me right now, um, who they drafted last year, uh, number one from Penn State. Uh, Hamler, K.J. Hamler. Uh, they've got him on the roster too. And they've got defensive talent. Um, you know, the more you think about Denver, it's like it all comes down to quarterback because, you know, when you've got Miller and Chubb, um, on that team. Remember, they added Darby and they franchised and then I think uh, actually extended and signed Justin Simmons. Um, good roster. San Francisco is 11, and then Washington is 12th. Washington, 12th best roster in the NFL. Where did I think it was going to come in? Closer to the middle. Um, and 12's getting close to the middle, but it's not in the middle. I would have thought 15, 16, 17, something like that. They're ahead of Tennessee. They're ahead of Indy. They're ahead of Seattle. They're ahead of Pittsburgh and New Orleans. I mean, to be honest with you, I love New Orleans' roster, and I'm also a believer in Jameis Winston. Um, they're way ahead of the Giants, who came in 19 on this list, and Philadelphia on this list um, is way, way back there at 29. I don't think Philadelphia's roster is 29th best in the league. I think a lot with them is going to, you know, depend on the quarterback. I think, the, you know, their offensive skill position players for sure. Will Devontae Smith be an immediate impact player? Will, will Jalen Rager in year two be something? But they still have defensive talent, and they added Anthony Harris um, to that secondary. But uh, Washington, 12th best roster in the NFL. Pretty aggressive. I'll read to you what they wrote. Spending premium draft picks on the same position group year after year should lead to success. Doesn't always work out that way, but it certainly has for Washington's D-line. Chase Young and Montez Sweat both graded out as top 12 edge defenders in the NFL last season. Jonathan Allen was one of the league's best interior pass rushers per pro football focus in 2020. Deron Payne remains a steady presence against the run inside. Those four plus rotational pieces, such as Matt Ioannidis and Tim Settle, have developed arguably the league's best defensive line. It's funny about Ioannidis. There are some, I will tell you, there are some that will, will out there that would say he's our best defensive lineman when healthy. Biggest weakness, the decision to release Morgan Moses opens up a potential weak spot on what appeared to be a solid offensive line. Cornelius Lucas and second-round pick Sam Cosme are among the top options to fill that vacancy at right tackle. Yeah, Charles Leno is the left tackle. Just everybody understand that. And I think Cosme's got a really good chance to be the starting right tackle. 
The biggest weakness offensive line, I, I actually think there are bigger questions in the secondary. X factor, of course, they write is Ryan Fitzpatrick, and then they get into, you know, the fact that he's had a couple of really good uh, years um, here in his last two. Twelfth best roster, you know, defensively, fifth best defensive roster, top five. Uh, I, I didn't mean fifth best. I'd say top five defensive roster as a total roster. Twelfth, uh, I would have probably had it a few notches lower, but not a lot lower. Um, it's sort of hard to think that Seattle, you know, that their roster is worse than Washington's in the eyes of pro football focus. Same with Tennessee, a, a team that a lot of people think has a chance to get to the AFC championship game again. I like Indy a lot. I like their roster. I like their coaching staff. Obviously, Carson Wentz and Frank Reich together um, are going to be interesting. If they can sort of, you know, create the magic they did in Philadelphia, I think Indy's going to be really good this year. Okay. Um, if you're wondering about the, uh, you know, co-CEO Tanya Snyder story, we pretty much did that on the show yesterday. I will just tell you that I spent more time sort of reading through that journal article, and Tommy nailed it. It's a puff piece, man. It is, it, it's a puff piece or a very poorly researched piece or, you know, puff piece slash ground rules. And the bottom line is Snyder trying to convince people that he wasn't in, he wasn't as involved, and that's the reason for the organization's culture is ridiculous. Him going a step further to say that now that the limited partners are gone, um, that's a big step forward, as if any of us ever thought that Fred Smith was part of the problem or that Bob Rothman or Dwight Schar were part of the problem. Come on, man. I mean, deal with reality. You're, you can't sell that one to anybody that's been paying attention. Apparently, though, the writer of the story either wasn't paying attention or was but couldn't follow up on some of that stuff. All right. Uh, I want to get to this interview and share this interview with you with Dan Grunfeld, Ernie Grunfeld's son. I enjoyed it. I think you will, too. That's next after this word from one of our sponsors. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dominic. Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina wine mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
My guest today on the podcast is Dan Grunfeld. Dan is Ernie Grunfeld's son, and he's written a book titled By the Grace of the Game, The Holocaust, a Basketball Legacy, and an Unprecedented American Dream. You can get it anywhere you get a book, or you can pre-order it wherever you get a book, uh, Amazon, etc., and I, somebody made me aware um, of this book that you've written. And let me just start off by saying, you know, I, I know it wasn't a great ending for your dad here in D.C., but those of us in the media that got to know your dad really liked your dad. It was hard not to like your father. Um, he was always so accessible and always such a great guy. Um, and there were moments here, you know, in his tenure with the Wizards as general manager. Um, but uh, how's he doing? Like, I hope he's well. What's, what's he up to these days? Do you, can you tell us? Yeah, Kevin, thank you. No, he, he's doing great. Still lives in the D.C. area. And my sister and then her daughter, so my niece, live in the area, so he's enjoying being a grandpa. And, you know, just great memories in D.C. You know, you said things didn't end well. That's kind of the nature of the NBA. You know, when things end, they rarely do end well, but he's in that business for four decades and, uh, you know, some great thrills in D.C., uh, you know, with, with some of those great teams he built. So, yeah, he's uh, very fond of, of the area for sure and, and still there and still doing well. Does he miss it? Does he miss being a part of a team? Absolutely. I mean, that's kind of his DNA, you know, just, just being around basketball his whole life. Uh, and he just loves the game. I mean, he really, really loves and enjoys the game of basketball. So, you know, there is you know, a part of him that, that does miss it. But I think he also enjoys having a little bit of, of free time and space because, you know, there's a, it's, there's a lot of pressure in that, in that job. And, uh, you know, he did it for so long. And so I think it's, it's nice as well to kind of have, have a little bit of time. Yeah, I think, you know, even those of us that are, you know, Washingtonians and big Wizards fans, in my case, Bullets and then Wizards fans, my whole life um, I've been, you know, I remember your father's career as a professional, and I certainly remember the, the, the famous Sports Illustrated cover um, with Bernard King and, and Ernie Grunfeld, the Ernie and Bernie show from, you know, back in the 70s. And I want to talk about some of this stuff, and I'm assuming some of this stuff is in your book um, as well. But I, I'm not sure that all of the fans know how good of a player, you know, your father was. Like, he was a really good college basketball player, an excellent college basketball player. He was a first-round draft choice. He went 11th overall in the 1977 draft and, you know, had a, a professional career that lasted, I don't know, eight, nine, ten years and was part uh, of Bernard King's um, some of his famous playoff games as a Nick back in the early uh, to mid-80s. So um, we'll get into some of this, but tell me real quickly, uh, by the way, for those that don't know, Dan, um, Ernie's son, um, who wrote this book, was also quite a, a basketball player himself. Dan was a college basketball player at Stanford and then had an international career uh, as well. So tell us why the book, you know, what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, well, for writing is, is a love of mine. So when I was playing professional basketball, I had several contributing writing positions to websites. So I just love to write. But, you know, more importantly, this story, you know, means the world to me. Uh, people know about my dad as, a, as an executive, as an athlete, but very few people know that he's the only player in NBA history whose parents survived the Holocaust. And so, you know, you've heard, you've talked to my dad a lot of times. 
the uh, DC community has heard my dad speak. He sounds like he's from New York City, but right. my dad's from Romania, you know, and Hungarian is his first language. And so he has a history and a past that people really don't know about that certainly hasn't impacted me a lot. And I'm very proud of kind of what he's overcome and what my family has overcome. And really basketball has been the vessel to give my family a whole, a whole new life here in America. And so, uh, you know, just really meant the world to me to be able to tell that story. So I want to hear this story. I'm really interested. Your father grew up in Romania, um, but Hungarian, you said, was the language. Were, were his parents Romanian or were they Hungarian? They are from Romania on the border with Hungary, so Transylvania. So my dad is from the heart of Transylvania. Uh, and so while, you know, and actually the, it, it kind of went back and forth during World War II. So it was Hungary during the war and then went back to Romania. But, um, yeah, my dad grew up under communism. You know, both my uh, grandparents survived the Holocaust. My grandmother has a particularly big story. She was saved twice by Raoul Wallenberg, who's the greatest hero of the Holocaust. And, and, and so, you know, my dad grew up kind of with that background and came to America at the age of nine, having never touched a basketball, not speaking a word of English. And about 10 years later, he was standing on the podium as a gold medalist for the United States. You know, and uh, that kind of, it, it really is the American dream. And, kind of just a testament to what a game can do for people. But, you know, basketball's presence in my life and in my family's life is so much bigger than really people could imagine. You know, because, you know, the game has done things for my family that, you know, you it's it's just a really remarkable. <clears throat> so I'm interested in a couple of things going backwards, back to your um to Ernie's parents, your your grandmother and grandfather. They were Holocaust survivors. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I, I, I love this period of time. I love reading about this period of time. Obviously, the major Axis powers were Germany, Japan, and Italy. But am, am I wrong? Wasn't Romania and Hungary both part of the Axis group? Um, they, were, they were not part of the Allies in World War II. That, that's right. And, you know, Hungary in particular was sympathetic to the Nazis. And right. that's where my grand... So my grandmother was in Budapest, so she was really on the run on the streets of Budapest. And so, yeah, Hungary was, was sympathetic to the Nazis. And so, uh, you know, there was, you know, they were both kind of detained in different ways. They, uh, you know, but they survived. And, you know, my grandfather lost everyone. So his parents, all his siblings, he had two sisters, both killed. My grandmother was one of 10 children. Five of them were killed. Both of her, her parents were killed in Auschwitz. You know, so... This is obviously very heavy history, and this is kind of you know where my dad's background, and it's not something he talks about a lot. You know, he's very close to that trauma. For me, I have a generation of separation, and my grandmother lives here in the Bay Area, next uh, 25 minutes away from me. We talk every day, and are extraordinarily close. Wow! How so, old? How old you know, is your grandmother? Just turned 96 uh, two weeks ago. Wow! And um, I'll tell you, and she she really is the central point of the book. She came to every single basketball game I played at Stanford. Uh, she's you know, she's my hero. She's a hero. And this is detailed in the book. You know, she risked her life to save others during the war. She obtained uh, false documentation for others. You know, so she really, you know, my grandmother, her her impact on my life. I mean, it, it's hard to put into words, although I did try in the book. But, uh, you know, again, like where my dad comes from and, and that background, again, like it, it's something people don't know about, but it, it, it's so profound. And again, the game of basketball is so tightly kind of interwoven with the story that I really took it upon myself to, to tell that story and to really talk about the game and how and, you know, kind of what it's done for us and kind of that history. It's it's fascinating. I mean, I um, 
I know this story and I remember the story of the Holocaust reaching Hungary. I don't know if it was the same with Romania, but it it became it, it came very late in the war if if I remember this correctly. I could be thinking of places like Bulgaria and others, um but in that general area um, pretty much when the war was pretty much already decided, the Allies had already landed Normandy. They had already made their way into Germany. And as a last-ditch effort to try to you know, exterminate as many Jews as possible, I think those countries were the last hit. Um, by um, by the Holocaust um, in terms of you know the, the German now the, I mentioned and you confirmed that Romania and Hungary were part of the Axis powers but that didn't make it safe for Jews um, obviously um, but am I right about I don't know about Romania but I know that the, there's the story about Eichmann and others you know going into Hungary very late in the war. Um, and that was almost the last salvo against the Jews uh, by the Nazis. So, Kevin, kudos to you for your historical accuracy here. Uh, you know, you're 100% right, and actually, my grandmother was one of the Jews that Eichmann tried to exterminate. So he issued the extermination of the Budapest ghetto at the end of the war. So she, was in, so she was, was in Hungary. She was in Hungary. She was detained in the Budapest ghetto. And she, you know, and this is written about in depth in the book, you know, she saw Nazis with machine guns and they had an order from Adolf Eichmann, who's the architect of the Holocaust, right. to exterminate the 80,000 remaining Jews. And, um, you know, and, and that's when Raoul Wallenberg uh, saved her for the, for the last time. And, you know, and the ghetto was liberated and the war was over. So you're right. It, it, was, very, it was towards the end of the war uh, that, that things really escalated in Hungary. So how was she able to survive that? I mean, does, do you get into detail on that in the book? And if not, do you know? I'm curious. I know my my grandmother is so sharp. So, and over the years, I mean, she, her story has been detailed for the Holocaust Museum and others. So, I know all the details, and I do share it. I mean, I go very, very in depth in the book about what happened during the war, not only to my grandmother who survived, but to her family members who didn't. You know, she had three siblings and two parents killed in Auschwitz. She had a sibling killed in the Ukraine. She had a, a sibling killed on Eichmann's death march. You know, in, in Hungary. So, I kind of detail these different, you know, tragic things that happened during the war. You know, my grandmother, you know, she did anything she could to survive. You know, she, she had to scrape together food, and you have to be very, you know, diligent and safe and careful. But ultimately, you know, there was a lot of luck involved as well, and she'll be the first to admit that. You know, she did every single thing she could to stay safe. But, you know, ultimately, in that day and age, there's only so much you could do. And at the end, again, they were they were set to, to kind of kill everyone who, who was detained in the ghetto. And uh, Raoul Wallenberg, who was, a, you know, the hero of the Holocaust, he he, uh, he prevented it from happening at the last minute. And so that kind of, you know, facilitated her, her survival, which is obviously the greatest blessing. So she was in, I'm you know, just quick math, she was in her late teens, somewhere around there. That's right. That's right. She was 18 years old. What about your grandfather? My grandfather's also from Transylvania, so uh, Romania-Hungary border. He had it easier, not saying that he had it easy during the war, but he was in a labor camp in Hungary. My grandfather was a uh, semi-professional soccer player. He was a world-ranked ping-pong player, very big kind of strapping athletic guy. So he, you know, for labor, you know, he was uh, useful. So he was in a labor camp. He was actually a cook in the camp which my grandma still laughs at today because he had never had never and could not cook anything. But, uh, you know, he was a cook, so he just kind of dumped food into pots, but that gave him a little extra kind of nourishment. And, you know, he, he 
kind of just survived in the labor camp. So he had it a little bit easier. Is he alive? He passed away in 1986. So when I okay. was a baby, my grandfather passed. So did, did, did they, they didn't know each other before the war. Um, I'm assuming they didn't. Is that true? That's true. They actually, and again, this is all detailed in the book. Sure. Uh, they met the day after my grandmother got back. Uh, because she had no clothes, she had nothing to wear. So when she finally got home, her brother had survived, and he was also home, and he was in the, uh, the labor camp with my grandfather, and they were friends. And, and they had been liberated about six months prior, and my grandfather had opened up a little store that sold clothing. So my, my grandmother's brother bought my grandma to my, my grandfather's store to get some new clothes, and they met there, and then the rest is history. Um, so your grandfather was a big guy. I, you know, a lot of fans, a lot of our fans who have never seen your father up close, they don't understand your father was, is a big dude. You know, uh, your father's every bit of six, 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 seven in, and was when he was playing. Um, so, and, and it sounds like, you know, his father was an athlete. Was your grandmother, was Ernie's mother an athlete or not? My grandmother is athletic. But uh, she wasn't, you know, and, and in that day and age, like with, with you know, she was, a sure. kid, she was running around and playing and having fun. But what happened with the war and then, you know, there wasn't really opportunities to excel in, in athletics. But it was really my grandfather who was more serious about it. Uh, but, you know, but but definitely my grandmother was at, was athletic and, and enjoyed sports. And uh, it's funny, Kevin, what you say about my dad's size. Cause it's, it's definitely something people don't understand until you kind of experience it. But uh He's, you know, not only is he tall, but he's wide and he's big and he's yeah. powerful. And, yeah, he, uh, I, I, I joke, and this is true, you know, I'm, I'm a big guy too. I'm six foot six. My dad's hands are so big that my wedding ring can fit inside of his wedding, wedding ring. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, how, that's how big he is. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's an experience. Well, and remembering your father as a player, and I'm old enough to remember your father as a player, he was, he, like what you just said, it wasn't that he was tall. He was big and strong. He was a big, boxy dude. You know, that, that was his build. Um, and by the way, you know, Bernard King had a similar build, more athletic, I think you would say, than your father, but sort of a similar boxy build as well. Like, he wasn't super thin either during those years. I, I want to get to that because, um, you know, your father is so linked with Bernard King um, in, his, in his basketball lifetime. But uh, just going back, so your father, what year was he born? My dad was born in 1955. 55, and he was born in Romania. And so at the That's time, right. this was Soviet Romania, correct? Yes, it, it, was, it was under communism. So what was his upbringing like? How long did he live there? Yeah, and I, and I go into great detail about this in the book. It's so interesting. Uh, so the, he got to America when he was nine years old. So at eight, they left. Uh, you know, my dad had, a, had loving parents. Uh, he had a gr- an older brother who was his hero, which is another tragedy that he endured. My my uncle passed away uh, at a young age when I got to the United States, and that's also something I discussed at length in the book. But my dad had a very warm, loving family life, and so he didn't have any toys. You know, it was it was you know state sponsored work. It was it was a hard life, but for him, life was beautiful because he had everything he needed. And I've I've learned a lot from that because you know I, I asked my dad for this book. I said, Dad, what was it like to grow up so poor? And he said, I wasn't poor. Because I had everything I needed, you know. So the, the expectations kind of shift when you grow up in that environment. But listen, I mean, he he grew up watching animals get slaughtered in the courtyard 
of his uh, of his little apartment compound. You know, he grew up using an outhouse to go to the bathroom. It was, you know, it, it was a different life and, and a, just a different day and age. And of course, for me as someone who, you know, when I was born, my dad was an NBA player and he was the general manager of the Knicks. So we grew up so differently, yet there's this game that kind of links us and links these histories together. So how were they able to emigrate to the United States? It took 10 years. Uh, they were able to get Israeli passports through an organization that was helping Jews uh, leave communist Romania. And so uh, the state of Israel was, was helpful in, in allowing Jews to leave, you know, when, when their kind of lives and freedoms were at risk. And honestly, under, and I go into this in detail in the book, like, the, you know, it was dangerous under communism. <laughs> you know, people were beaten, jailed, killed you know, for speaking against the government. So there was just, you know, there's no life under communism for my family. And so they had been, again, my grandparents worked for a decade to try to get documentation. And it was ultimately, you know, Israel enabled the kind of them leaving. And then they had a stopover in Rome. And at the last minute, actually, they came to the United States. They were bound for Israel initially. Wow. So they, so I'm just curious before, and by the way, this is now like a must read book for me anyway, and I hope people feel the same way. It's called By the Grace of the Game, The Holocaust, A Basketball Legacy, and an Unprecedented American Dream, written by Ernie Grunfeld's son, Dan, who had a really good college career at Stanford and also an international basketball career and is written um, for much of his life. Um, I'm curious, when did your father start to play basketball? Was it in Romania? Was that option even available to him? Or did it happen when he got to New York as an eight or nine year old? Yeah, he when he was growing up in Romania, he had heard of basketball, but he had never played it and he had never touched a basketball. Um, when he got to America, listen, he didn't speak English. Uh, my grandparents had to work all the time to try to, you know, make ends meet. And my uncle, may he rest in peace, was diagnosed with leukemia a few months after they, they arrived. Mm. And he passed away less than a year later. And so my dad, you know, was an immigrant, not speaking the language. You know, parents were working all the time, had just lost his hero. He, he needed an outlet. And so he went to the park to make friends and learn the language. And he just started playing basketball. And, you know, I, I think everything happens for a reason. And the game really was heaven sent for my dad and for my family because that that profound loss that he faced, the game allowed him to heal from that. But, you know, on the, on, on the streets of New York City and on the playgrounds, basketball is the language people speak. You know, so he, he you know, years later, not only was he, did he have friends at the park, he was the best player in the neighborhood, and he kind of ran the park, you know. So the, the game kind of just gave him that, that vehicle to, to go forward, but also to heal from some, some really difficult stuff. So Israel was the intention, but they end up in New York. So where in New York did he grow up? In Queens, Forest Hills, Queens. Oh, in Forest Hills. Uh, wow. Yep. Um, and so he learned English as he was learning basketball. Um and uh, so when does it become obvious to your grandparents, his parents, him, um, that he's pretty good at this thing? It's funny because I go into uh, great detail in the book about this. Because my grandparents, you know, their backgrounds, listen, they survived the Holocaust. They got to America. They wanted to build a good life. They had a fabric store in the Bronx. They were loving, supportive, amazing parents, but they worked, worked, worked. And that's how my dad had so much success, not only as a player, but as an executive. It was all about work. And so my grandparents never saw my dad play basketball until he was a junior in high school. They never closed their store. They never went to a game. And their coach called them at the store and said, 
you have to see this kid play. You know, for for them, it was just a recreational activity. They knew he did it a lot, but uh, and and I again, this is a, this is a great story because of how kind of how it happened. But they they got to the gym and they saw and. Let's just say that after that, you know, my grandpa never missed a game. He, my dad never had to come to the fabric store to work again. It kind of got the impression like, okay, something's going on here. And listen, my, my dad just took off and, you know, he was an amazing high school player, an amazing college player. He was a role player in the NBA, uh, but he had a nice long nine-year career. But, you know, he's an Olympic gold medalist. Like, you know, he, he, he became a legend in basketball from, from really, I mean, I don't even want to say humble beginnings, Kevin, because that doesn't kind of do it justice. Yeah, I'm so um so your grandparents had a fabric store in the Bronx. Um your father is a, a Romanian Jew in the US. He's learning how to play basketball, but I'm just imagining based on the culture that academics also were very important how dead set on, you know, being a a great student before anything else were your grandparents and was your father a good student? They were very focused on education, particularly my grandmother. She loved to read and learn, and and the war took her education from her. You know, she was no longer able to go to school. So my grandma's a brilliant person, but she's not formally educated. So super important for her, for my dad and my uncle before he passed, you know, to to be well-educated. And it's funny because they wanted my dad to go to a yeshiva when they got to the United States, which is kind of a, a, a school with secular Jewish education. But, you know, they go to school on Sundays. And my dad actually wasn't admitted because he didn't speak English. But he was happy about that because he didn't want to go to school on Sundays. Um, but, you know, he so he ended up going to public school. He went to TS 101 in Forest Hills uh, in Queens. But, yeah, education was really important. And when he said, was he a good student? My dad's a very intelligent, smart guy. You know, he had a different path because he didn't speak the language. Right. So he had to learn how to speak English. So he, there are stories, again, I, I, I go into detail on this in the book, of kids, you know, sitting in the back of the classroom with him, teaching him how to, how to speak and how to read while his other, his other uh, peers are, are kind of pro, you know, progressing with their studies. And so I'll say the one thing my dad was really good at always and still is to this day is math. You know, and it's, it's funny because that's the universal language, right? Numbers right. are numbers. And so um, he, he excelled at math. And actually, you know, as a basketball player, as an executive, people, my dad is, is quiet and he doesn't kind of disclose everything, but he's, he's a wizard with numbers. And that's, I see him do some computations very quickly in ways that have been very helpful to him that others maybe couldn't see what he saw because of his ability to work with numbers. So he went to PS whatever in Queens. And then what high school did he go to? He went to Forest Hills High School. And so that's where your grandfather first saw him play as a junior, and you said your father was a really good high school basketball player. Obviously, he ended up being recruited um, by, you know, uh, an SEC team in Tennessee. And by the way, for those that, you know, don't know, Tennessee's got, you know, they've got some history in basketball. I know that the, most people think SEC and think football, but Tennessee's one of those SEC schools not named Kentucky that ex- that actually has a pretty good basketball history as well. How good was he in high school? How highly recruited was he coming out of it? Yeah, he was an All-American. He was one of the most highly recruited players in the country. And you mentioned Kentucky, and again, this is discussed in the book. The Kentucky coaches used to knock on the door on Sunday mornings and just say, hey, we were in the area, thought we'd stop by. Really? You know, like, there, were te- oh, there, were, there were coaches all over the neighborhood. They'd come to my grandparents' fabric store. They'd come to my dad's high school. And listen, this, he's now, I mean, by, as he's a senior, junior, senior in high school, now he has, he's speaking English better. But he's still an immigrant from Romania who just was, you know, a couple of years removed from communism and, and even the Holocaust, right? And so, but there was just this, 
kind of flood of college coaches to Forest Hills. And, yeah, he was high school All-American, one of the most highly recruited players. Um, boy, so that would have been um... – I'm trying to think because Albert King, who played at my alma mater, the University of, of Maryland, <laughs> was was the number one high school player in America when Lefty Drizel recruited him um, out of Brooklyn. And I'm and I think so. Your father would have no, no. Your father's younger. Obviously, your father's much younger because he would have ended up at Tennessee in like the mid '70s. Albert King got to to College Park in '77 or '78. Um, Anyway, uh, right. So, so Albert's younger because Bernard is a year younger than my dad. Yes, and so Bernard came to to Knoxville the year after. But and Albert was the number one high school player in the country. Country, I believe, two years, right? I oh yeah, no, 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 he, junior he, and senior. He, the, the, the lefty. I don't know how much you know about the history of Maryland basketball. Gary Williams obviously won a national championship, and and lefty really started the you know um, the tradition here. Lefty during the seventies, Dan recruited in order Tom McMillan, who was actually the number one player in America. Bill Walton was was number two. He recruited Moses Malone, who may be the most highly <laughs> recruited high school basketball player in the history of recruiting high school basketball players. Moses showed up on campus for one day and then took a million bucks from the Utah Stars to go to the ABA. Right. <laughs> Never played. Um, then he recruited um, uh, he recruited Albert King, um, who was the number one player in America. He recruited a guy by the name of Reggie Jackson, who was not a great college basketball player, but at Roman Catholic in Philadelphia was the number one um, player. So he recruited four Five, did I just name five or four? Four or five top-rated players in America during that decade, um, which was, you know, that was, he could sell. He could recruit. So back to your father, though, for a moment. So why Tennessee? Why go to the... Yeah, you know, at that, at that time, you know, the, the best players in New York City were going down south. You know, the Big East wasn't the powerhouse that it would become. Right. And so they, they call it like the pipeline to the south. You know, and so I and, and the SEC was the best conference, and he just you know he he vibed with with the staff there. You know, they were again they were at his high school every day. They were at the store every day. They they really really wow. wanted him, and and I think he 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 he, uh, he saw an opportunity to play right away, which he did. He was first team All SEC as a freshman, and it was just a good fit. You know, and listen, they got Bernard a year later from New York. You know, Bernard is from you know went to Fort Hamilton High School in uh, in Brooklyn. My dad's from Forest Hills in Queens. You know, they're New York kids who went down south, and you know together. I mean, they were one of the best duos in college basketball history. You know, they're, uh, I think it was, it was my dad's junior year, Bernard's sophomore year. They both averaged more than 25 points a game. You know, so I'm not sure how often that's happened in college basketball, but, you know, two New York City kids going down south and, you know, they're, they did it with a lot of flair and, you know, they were, they were, they, that's why they were called the Ernie and Bernie show. You know, they were really beloved in Knoxville and, and, despised by the rest of the SEC. Yeah, and imagine, you know, with a shot clock and a three-pointer, um, what they would have averaged. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm trying to think, and, and you you might be able to help me with this, T Tennessee never, I know they never made a Final Four, but did they make a deep tournament run to your, during your father's years with, with Bernard King at, at Tennessee? You know, it was different then because I don't think there were 64 teams. They had um, 64, but, yeah. But they but, – but they never, they never made like a deep national championship run. They were a top 10 nationally ranked program. Right. You know, so they had a lot of success, but they never like were knocking on the door of a national championship. But, you know, they were, 
they were a phenomenon, my dad and Bernard together, but the team in general, I mean, they were fun to watch. They played this exciting, up-tempo brand of basketball. And as you mentioned, you know, Bernard and my dad were on the cover of Sports Illustrated together. You know, ESPN made a documentary about them in 2013 yeah. called Bernie and Ernie that basically just told the story, right? Two kids from New York and, you know, Bernard grew up in poverty. My dad grew up, you know, under a cloud of tragedy and basketball, man. It just, it changed both their lives. And, you know, and interestingly, they played together for the Knicks and my dad backed up Bernard. And so Bernard lived up the street from us. So I would come home from school and Uncle B would be in our kitchen just hanging out with my dad. And, <laughs> you know, to this day, my dad will always, you know, I'll talk to my dad. I'll say, yeah, I talked to Bernard yesterday. I talked to Bernard. Like whenever Bernard, you know, he, they still talk often and it's always a special thing. So those guys have this really deep relationship and bond. It's super special to see. You know, I, I remember the 30 for 30. I've not seen it and I'm going, and I just made a note to myself. I've not, I have not watched that 30 for 30, but I really want to watch it now. I I'm curious for, you know, a Jewish New Yorker and for Bernard King to be in the South in the early to mid seventies playing college basketball. Did that pose challenges for both of them? It did for Bernard. And that's actually discussed in the 30 for 30. You know, he, he dealt with, with racism and, and things like that. And so I know it was, it was hard for him and there were issues that he faced. You know, my dad didn't really experience or at least didn't internalize much anti-Semitism and, you know, I think he, he was very focused on basketball and, you know, he was a very beloved person on campus. Um, and so he was just having such a ball that he maybe he just kind of overlooked some of it or didn't notice it. Right. So he didn't have, you know, so for him, I think it was, he, he didn't experience so much of that. Uh, but, but I know Bernard, you know, it was, it was impossible for Bernard not to see like he was detained. I think there was, he tells a, a really harrowing story during the 30 for 30 of being racially profiled on campus. You know, these are things no one, no one wow. could ever forget. Um, and so I know it was hard for him down south. And, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, those, it was a different, you know, it was a different experience for those guys, you know, not being in New York City, being down there. And, yeah, again, so for Bernard, I think it was more challenging. Was Grunfeld a change name or was that the actual family name? That's our family name. It's, it's a German origin. So my right. grandfather, I think generations prior to him were, were from Germany. And so that's where that name comes from. So um, your father and Bernie uh, remain close now? Absolutely. Yeah, they they, they talk often and, you know, they, yeah, they just have this such a deep, meaningful bond, you know, and I, and it's it's really special, you know, because they met when they were, you know, 18, 19 years old. And and again, both being from New York, my dad knew of Bernard and Bernard knew of my dad, you know, it's kind of high school. And and so, yeah, they, they still have a close relationship to this day. All right, um, I I'm keeping you far much far too long no, longer listen, than I thought. It's fine. Don't okay, because um, I'm I, I'm this is an interesting thing, and we haven't even gotten to your father's like NBA career, and then obviously his professional um, career as a general manager um, in the league. Um, you know, my memory of your father as an NBA player is he was okay. There was he wasn't a superstar. I don't think he was ever an All Star. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I do remember that you know Ernie and Bernie were back together on some of those Knicks teams in the early to mid '80s, including the Bernard King, um, uh, you know, team that where he had you know uh, 50 or whatever in Detroit in a playoff game five. You know, some of those memorable playoff games against the Pistons um, back in that era. So tell me a little bit about his professional career. He, he wasn't drafted by the Knicks. He was the 11th round select, the 11th pick overall in the 1977 draft by the Bucks. 
That's right. So he was drafted 11th. Uh, so he played two years in Milwaukee, three in Kansas City, and four in New York. And, uh, you know, he had his best years in Kansas City. Uh, they made it to the Western Conference Finals, and he kind of started at point guard during the playoffs. And, uh, but he was a role player. You know, he averaged double figures a few years, but he was really just a very solid role player, great teammate, really knew the game. You know, whereas he was a superstar in college, yeah, he, he was never an all-star or anything like that, but had a successful and, and good NBA career. And, yeah, you know, when, when him and Bernard reunited in New York, you know, Bernard led the league in scoring in 84, right? He, he averaged 32.9 points per game. My dad was his teammate during that time. And, you know, Bernard had so many iconic moments. Um, he famously scored 50 on back-to-back nights right. in Texas. You know, and, 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 and as so another part of the book is kind of tracing my basketball career and so and how I kind of walked it hand in hand with my grandma and my dad and kind of the differences, right, between how my journey and my dad's journey and my family's journey. So, so that's another part of the book. And, you know, I was born a week after Bernard had those back-to-back 50 games. You know, so really I was born at the, at the, the peak of Bernard's dominance and, and kind of his place in, in the basketball kind of ecosystem as kind of top, top dog. Right. Uh, that, that's kind of how I came into the world. Um, you know, I'm just trying to think. I, I, I remember, so, so for those that are listening that don't know this, the Sacramento Kings were originally the Kansas City Kings. And I can remember being in college, um, you know, or in high school, you know, late night, 1130 CBS, like Kansas City playing the Lakers or Phoenix <laughs> or whatever. And you know, I want to say that on the um, on those teams, uh, the guy that I'll never forget being a part of the, that that team was Otis Birdsong. I think that that's who he was drafted by, and played on those teams. Like I don't know why I would remember that necessarily, well, but I th- were you? Well, he, oh, yeah, go, sorry to interrupt, you, but Otis was a great player, and he was my dad's teammate. But uh, you know, he was he was an all star, I believe. And, uh, you know, so when I mentioned that my dad started, uh, at point guard, it was during those eras, uh, during that era, you know, Phil Ford, Otis Burke, Phil Ford, exactly. Phil Ford yeah. was on those teams. You know, yeah. That's right. And Phil, Phil Ford was an Olympic teammate of my dad's, uh, you know, and Dean Smith had coached that team. Of course, Phil Ford was a star at North Carolina, but, you know, they had really good teams and they made it to the Western Conference Finals after they lost to, to Houston and Moses Malone. But, uh, yeah, they had, they had a terrific run, but those were, those were some really exciting teams. So your father was on the 76 Olympic team in Montreal with Dean Smith coaching right. it? Yep. So yep. so that was the Olympics in Montreal where Nadia Comaneci became the star of the Olympics, a Romanian gymnast. Did your father know her? It's, it's very astute observation. Funny you mention it because a lot of my book, there's a lot of serendipity in my family story. So my dad's always kind of, coming across people who kind of have a link to his background and, and Nadia being one of them. So, you know, when in 76, you know, Nadia recorded the per- first, you know, perfect tens in Olympic history and my dad's watching on a monitor. And I asked him that very question, did you feel a connection with her at that moment? And, and, you know, he didn't at that time because they had escaped. They had fled communist Romania as refugees, you know, so the, you know, he didn't really feel such, such a connection to that place. He was just, I think, just relieved, happy, proud, ecstatic to be an American, not only competing in the Olympics, but just in an American period, having freedom. You know, so he kind of had left that part of his past behind him. But uh, I, during my basketball career, you know, I actually became a Romanian citizen and played for their national team briefly because, you know, I played internationally and having a Romanian passport was helpful in different leagues. But it just kind of shows, right? I grew up in, 
you know, in, in the suburbs of, of New York City, and my dad was a GM of the Knicks. I, I played for Romania. My dad grew up in Romania. He played for the United States of America. Wow. You know, so every, everyone's path is different. And, you know, that's kind of the nature of the book to kind of show these, these kind of varying journeys that we, that we all kind of travel on. What was it like playing there? And by the way, uh, getting citizenship there and then playing there, when were you there? I played there briefly. So there was just an a international tournament that I played for them briefly. But, you know, I got my citizenship, I think, in 2008. And it was a very long, arduous process. But I was able to get it. And it did help me in, in play in, in different leagues overseas because I counted as a, kind of as a European. But, uh, you know, being in Romania, you know, it was interesting. I'd never been there before. Uh, but, you know, another kind of thing that's related to that is my first professional career, I played in Germany, you know, and, and so that was a whole, a whole different thing for my family. Sure. And, and I write this in the book. I'm probably the only professional basketball player who called his grandma when he got a contract offer and asked if it was okay if he accepted it <laughs> because I, I was, I called my grandma and I, you know, I call my grandma on you, which means that's what everyone calls it, which means mother in Hungarian. And I said, on you, I have an offer, you know, and she congratulated me. I said, but it's in Germany. You know, and the first thing she she said, so she said, you know, this is an opportunity for you. You know, the, and and I write this in the book. She said, you know, sons are not responsible for the sins of their fathers. She right. said, go experience life, experience the world, and so. But there was also like kind of a a reconciliation for me being in Germany and you know confronting some of that history there as well. That's that's a really a, such an incredible response um, from your grandmother. Um, and really, it's, it's such a lesson that can even be applied to a lot of the conversations we're having today. Um, I b- Back to the 76 Olympic team, just for a moment, because that team was coached by Dean Smith, and on that staff was John Thompson, the late John Thompson. Absolutely. Who, you know, worked at our radio station for years, and we all got a chance to know Coach really well over the years. But um, that started the relationship between Dean Smith and John Thompson was super special. I mean, you know, Dean Smith was ahead of his time as a progressive um, and, you know, um, you know, integrating the University of North Carolina sports programs with, with with Charlie Scott. But on that on that team were guy. I mean, I remember that. That's like the first Olympics I can remember. And that's why I remembered Nadia Comaneci. And then there was the Olympics before, which was the Russian gymnast. Um, Olga Corbett. Olga Corbett, thank you. Uh, so it was yeah. back. Yeah, it was it was back to back sort of communist gymnasts who were dominating the, the the dominating stories in the West. You know, ironically. But anyway, on that '76 Montreal team, um, all of the North Carolina players were on it. You know, Phil Ford, Walter Davis, Mitch Kupchak. I think Tommy Lagarde was on that team. It like, was. Yeah, Dean, Dean put all of his players, and there were a ton of ACC players. Um, Steve Shepard, who at the time in 76 was the best player on Maryland's team, was on that right. Olympic team. Um, and then I think Adrian Dantley was on that Olympic team too. Not an ACC player, but a D.C. guy um, who you know had played at Notre Dame. I mean – what an Olympic team that was, and then obviously um, it didn't, you know, it didn't go well, um, sort of after that Olympic-wise, until we got the professionals um, involved. Uh, I I didn't realize that your father was a part of that Olympic team. That's 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 interesting. Um, so, you know, the pro career, and then obviously the career as an executive um, in the NBA. Um, your father was always a wheeler and dealer, right? I mean, I don't, that's, I mean, I, I know, um, 
I really know Ernie from his days in Washington, but I certainly rem- remember you know him in in uh, Milwaukee in particular, where he had great great success as a GM there. Um, what? How do you view your father as a general manager over the course of you know um, all the teams that he uh, general managed? New York, Washington, Milwaukee. Yeah, listen, I, I'm so proud of my dad. You know, for the executive he he is, and but the, also the person he is. I mean, he as as you said, you know, you have such respect for him, and he's treated you so kindly. I can't tell you the how many people have told me how nice my dad was to them. Really was. You know, and, 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 and the respect he, he showed them. And, to, and as a son, nothing can make you prouder than that. Uh, you know, I'm also just tremendously proud of the success he's had. And, you know, he, he was the general manager of the NBA for nearly 30 years. To have that amount of longevity speak for itself. Of course, you know, when you sit in that seat, you know, there's always going to be decisions you made that could have gone better or criticism from fans and this and that. But, you know, if you really kind of step back and have perspective, I mean, he, you know, he took two two Knicks teams to the finals. You know, his Milwaukee Bucks team went to Game Seven of the Eastern Conference Finals. You know, he built two teams in Washington that I think, you know, I have so many amazing memories of the, you know, Gilbert and Antoine and Karan and then Bradley and and uh, and John and, and Otto Porter and and Paul Pierce. You know, there were so many thrills with the teams he built, and so you know, I'm just so proud of him at, for the person he is, but also for the success he had. I mean, listen. He, he, he became a legend in basketball as a player and executive and someone whose name people know, uh, you know, from, from the background he came from. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a one in a million shot that that would happen. And so I just can't tell you the pride I have and kind of, you know, the success he's had and the person he is. How hard was it for you, for the family, for him, when it wasn't going well and he was, you know, um, the center and, and the target of a lot of criticism from fans and media people? Yeah, I mean, you know, my dad is big shoulders, you know, literally and figuratively. And my dad's all about work. He puts his head down and, and he works. And I learned that from him. You know, that being said, Kevin, it's not pleasant. And I, and not only in DC, I learned that as a kid in New York. You know, there's no market more, right. you know, more kind of vicious than the New York City media market. And I grew up, you know, reading about reading in the paper and, and hearing criticism on talk radio. Uh, you just, it's kind of par for the course. And, and when you run a sports team, it's a very emotional, you know, people are really invested in it as they should be as part of their community. But, you know, there, it, it's a, it's a pretty, it, it can be a, a brutal kind of occupation and, and you have to be prepared for it. But for a family, it's not pleasant, but it, it brings you close together and it really kind of teaches you perspective. Cause at the end of the day, you're playing a game, you're, you're doing the best you can, you're making the best decisions that you can, but you have to always keep it in perspective because life is much bigger than that. And truthfully, this story I tell shows that. And, and, and my family and myself, like we've always, I've always looked at basketball through a lens that's much bigger than the Washington Wizards or the Milwaukee Bucks or the New York Knicks. And we've been talking about this today, right? My grandparents survived the Holocaust. My dad fled communism. His brother passed away. And basketball literally gave him a new life. So for me and for my family, the game is so meaningful that you, you know, you just try to keep that perspective. But you know, it's never pleasant when when you're kind of you know the the brunt of criticism. But again, my dad's got really big shoulders, and I'm just so proud of how he's handled himself. In addition to the success he had, I mean, listen, in the DC market, I mean, they made deep playoff runs with both of those teams, and I was in DC when you know the the arena was hopping, and we and I would be with my family, and people would come up to my dad and shake his hand and thank him. And then a year later, it's not going so well, and there's a different reaction. It's just far for the course. Did you ever say to him though, Dad, Jan Vesely, really? 
Never. And I'll tell you, you know, it's funny because I have contacts. I was playing in Europe, you know, when Jan Vesu was in Europe, and I saw him in the final four. You know, my college teammate, Josh Childress, who was one of the top players in Europe at the time. Mm-hmm. You, you should have seen how the, the battle that him and Jan Vesley had when Vesley was 18. And, and actually, Kevin, it's funny, like, I know of championship contenders who tried to trade up into the top five to draft Jan Vesley that year. So it just, you know, so it's, you know, of course, in hindsight, it didn't work out, right? But my dad is, you know, he's data driven. So he took all the information, made the best decision at the time, which he does with everything. And some work, some don't. So, you know, as long as the process is good, and I'll tell you, man, I saw this guy in Europe. I thought he was going to, I myself also thought he was going to be the next Andre Carolico uh, or better, but it didn't work out. But, uh, Listen, you can't. It, it's hard to second guess when the process is there. You know what I mean? Of course. Uh, what else do you want us to know about your dad? I actually really um, am looking forward to, to to reading this book now because it's such an interesting family story, and a lot of it I had no idea of. Yeah, I think it'll be eye opening. Uh, you know, if you, knowing my dad is kind of an executive as a player, you'll, you'll learn a lot about him. And also, it's a family story, Kevin. I mean, you know, also a story of self discovery for me. You know, and so it just really kind of touches on kind of the, the vast human experience. You know, there's there's pain, there's triumph, there are tears, there are, there's laughter and love. And it's really a family story, you know, and so uh, it, it involving sports and, and involving history. And so I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm proud to share it. I'm definitely proud of my grandma, my dad. You know, they, they fought and survived so I could have, you know, a better life. And so I don't take that lightly at all. And. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just, you know, grateful to, to share the story with folks. So, you know, as you said, like the book is available for pre-order now by the grace of the game. I'm honored for folks to spend a little time, you know, with me and my family reading the book and just, you know, again, excited to share the story. I want to ask you one more thing about your dad as the GM here. Does he ever, and sure. has he ever shared with you any of the moves, any of the decisions that he made that he regrets? Um, it's not really regret again, cause it's all about process. You know, it, it's about, you can, you can reflect and say what worked out and what did not And sure. Oh, I wish I like, Oh, that didn't work. Like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that because like it, it ended up not working out, but my dad never made a decision without, you know, doing the due diligence, having the data. And also like, you know, there are decisions he made that were contingent upon other things happening or not. And as you said, my dad's a wheeler and dealer and my dad had so much success over the years because he's not afraid to take risks. Right. So, and again, there's so much happening behind the scenes that the public and fans don't know about, but sometimes in order to keep yourself alive for certain situations that could be franchise altering, you need to, you know, maybe forego other opportunities that have more certainty. And then if they, if it doesn't work out, you have to make other decisions, right? So it's almost like constant expected value calculation, you know, and my dad was a master of that, but, but there's certainly things that, oh, I wish that we, that we wouldn't have done that or wouldn't have done this. But, you know, listen, if you would, and you mentioned like draft record, if you would, go and look at the data of like who my dad drafted the careers they had he's had a, he's had an excellent draft record you know not only did he find folks in the second round like michael red and and ronald flip murray who were like you know diamonds in the rough and some of the best second round picks but you know his top picks in the lottery were were the, they turned out um you know i meant i mean the top three picks obviously the best league picks ended up not turning out right. as they would have liked but you know like drafting in the in the middle of the first round and getting career you know serviceable NBA players with 10-year careers and were champions, which he did, you know, more often than not. You know, he, he had actually quite quite good draft record. But, you know, again, like, there, there's always going to be the decision, like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. But at the end of the day, man, it's all love. Like, I know he has a lot of love for the D.C. community. He's proud of the teams he built. 
and and I'm certainly proud of them. Well, was there one that you called them up and said you shouldn't have done that? <laughs> you mean when it happened, or, yeah, or well, no, it, or after when, when it happened? Honestly, and, and you know, listen, I, I'm a basketball player myself. I grew up around the game. I'm I, I love the history of the game. I know the game quite well. Uh, not one time, you know, because. Listen, and I know, and it's not only my dad, right? There's a whole staff of people, and you know, I after after I you know stopped playing, I, I got my MBA at Stanford, and so I kind of had an opportunity to deal with like some really top business leaders and kind of see how they make decisions. It's ex- their processes in a lot of instances were exactly how my dad went about his decision making, and so like the process was just there. You know what I mean? So there was never anything where I said. Oh, like this is not going to work out. I just believe in, in his process, and and most of the time it did work out. And again, like he's one of the longest tenured executives in NBA history. I, you know, I think that it, it shows. Uh, he was always incredibly well respected by everybody in the game. That's for sure. Um, tell him I said hello, please. Uh, I am definitely looking forward to this book. I didn't really know what to expect when I had you on, but I, I really appreciate the conversation and um, like, and, very, like. and very interested uh, in it. Um, and again, the name of the book is By the Grace of the Game, The Holocaust, A Basketball Legacy, and an Unprecedented American Dream, written by Dan Grunfeld, Ernie's son. And I think hopefully after these last 30 minutes or whatever it's been, um, uh, he's impressed uh, all of you as much as he has me as well. Um, best of luck with the book. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. It was good to spend time with you today, and I'm grateful. Thank you. I really enjoyed that uh, with Dan Grunfeld. Uh, I hope you did too. Back tomorrow, Tommy will be with me. Enjoy the day. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.